Please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 4, 10 through 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I, sent out, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So, as you know by now, we're jumping back into our Philippians series. Today we have two more weeks, this week, and then we'll wrap up Philippians uh, next Sunday. This letter where Paul paints a picture for us of the Jesus life. What is life with Jesus, life in Jesus, life lived for Jesus? What does it look like? And in chapter four, we've been focusing on the issue of our hearts. What kind of hearts are conducive to the Jesus life? What kind of hearts can we have that Jesus would be pleased to dwell in? And I've been giving us a proverb uh, that's been kind of the theme verse of, of Philippians 4 for us. It is this proverb 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. You're probably getting sick of hearing that proverb by now. But your heart is the inner person, your inner core, and, and, and everything flows from there. Your thoughts, your motivations, your feelings, that's such a valuable part of who you are. So we want to guard it and protect it so that it is a place where Jesus would be pleased to dwell. And we've been looking at different enemies, threats to our hearts, enemies like anxiety, enemies like impurity that gets in our hearts, or discontentment. And we've been instead trying to practice these habits of the heart that will be that will be life-giving for us, like prayer, going to God with our anxieties, and, and focusing, fixing our minds on what is true and what is pure and what is noble, and, and practicing contentment. And today we're going to look at one final habit of the heart, the habit of generosity. We want to have these hearts uh, that aren't just guarded, but that are given away, <laughs> that we hold loosely to the things that we have, to our time and our resources. And we are, we are generous with our hearts and generous with our lives. 
We're not clinging tightly um, to what we have. So we're going to talk about generosity today. And um, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to look at the example of the Philippians. And the Philippians are a beautiful example of generosity. And then I want to draw out three principles of living generously that you see in this passage, right? So first, let's look at the Philippians together for a second, and then a couple core principles of living life generously for Jesus. All right, let's look at the Philippians. Um, So the context of this letter, most of you know this by now, hopefully, if I've done my job, um, is, you know, Paul's in prison in Rome, and uh, the Philippians have sent one of their own folks, Epaphroditus, to Rome to be with Paul. And they've, he has brought with him a financial contribution, a gift. And so Paul, in, in this passage, is thanking them for their, the gift of Epaphroditus and the financial gift. You see it in verse 10. Just take a look real quickly. Uh, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. How did they do that? By sending Epaphroditus with uh, money. Verse 14. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Okay? Um, Uh, Again, verse uh, 18, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent. So Paul is thanking them for their financial partnership, this generosity to him. And what we get in this passage, we get this just a little window into this really beautiful relationship that the Apostle Paul had with this church in Philippi. This really sweet partnership that they had together. And I want to focus this in on verse 15 and 16. He is he, reminding them fondly of this history they have, of this partnership together for the gospel. Let me read verse 15. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, so Philippi is in the province of Macedonia, uh, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He says, not, there's, you are the only church that engaged in this partnership. And I think the reason is not because there, were other, there weren't any other churches who would be willing to do this. And Paul tried and tried and tried, and the Philippi was the only one that said, yeah, we'll help you out. But I think part of this had to do with Paul's own um, priorities in sharing the gospel, that he had this unique passion to be able to offer the gospel to people free of charge, Okay. So he would go from town to town, and he'd preach the gospel, and he wouldn't charge for his services. And there are plenty of other uh, preachers in the day who would charge for their services. And fortunately for me, he says that's a legitimate thing to charge for preaching the gospel, okay? It's, it's not wrong to do that, but he felt particularly compelled that I want to be able to offer it free of charge. And so the ways he did that was, one, he had a tent-making business. He was bivocational, so he supported himself. And then secondly, what we find out here is he had this church, Philippi. And they were his financial partners. And they provided for him when he was going out to other churches. And what what I love about that is um, the church in Philippi was not particularly wealthy. There there are other wealthier churches. Um, He mentions Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a much more substantial city than Philippi. So apparently these Philippians were just a particularly generous group of people who partnered with him to allow him to offer the gospel to other people free of charge. So it's just, just a sweet partnership. And I want to give you another window into the Philippians' generosity that we get in another letter of Paul's, um, where he talks about them uh, very fondly because of their generosity. So uh, let me show you a map here. 
So this is the, uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And um, here's obviously the Mediterranean. Paul went about, right, establishing churches all over the Mediterranean Sea. If you look at the bottom right, you have uh, Israel. So you have the region of Judea where Jerusalem is. And when Paul was on his missionary journeys, at some point in that time, there was a big famine uh, that, that hit Judea. And so it, it wrecked the Judean Christ, uh, church. I mean, they, they experienced a lot of um, just, you know, their financial situation changed dramatically, and they were in great need. And so Paul learned of this. So what he did was he went throughout his, the churches in the Mediterranean, and, the, and, and he gathered this collection, this financial connection that, collection that he would then bring to the Judean uh, Christians. And he saw this as one of his, his greatest ministries because, you know, the, the church in Judea was primarily Jewish Christians, and the churches he established were primarily Gentile Christians. And so he saw this collection as a, a beautiful way to bring together Jew and Gentile into this one gospel. So he'd go from city to city and say, hey, I would love if you guys want to you know, contribute to this collection. And so he's going to Corinth, but he sends a letter ahead of them to remind them that he's coming and he's going to be asking for money. And so what he does is, in the letter, is he, he tells them how the Philippians and the other Macedonian churches have responded to this collection, all right? Did that make sense? It's long context. But here's what he says about the, the, uh, the Philippians. This is 2 Corinthians 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That would include Philippi. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, contributing to this, um, you know, this fund. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Isn't that a great example of generosity? Let me, let me just talk you through that, okay? In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. So the Philippians apparently were full of joy and they're also very poor people. And somehow joy plus poorness equaled, in their case, generosity. And they gave out of their poverty. Uh, they gave as they were able and even beyond their ability. Okay, we all know about um, people who live and spend beyond their means, right? Um, apparently, the Philippians gave beyond their means. That's a very novel concept. It's pretty amazing. Um, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this contribution. This is like every nonprofit's dream right here, right? <laughs> Please, can we give money to your organization? So there's this, there's this joy and there's sacrificial generosity, a sense of this is a privilege to be able to do this. And, and Paul begins by saying, this is all about the grace. God's grace was at work in the Philippians, creating this kind of joyful, sacrificial generosity. So we get just today, and that's another one, this sweet window into this, this church's, these, these hearts of generosity. And... Um, I was thinking about that, and I was, I was just thinking about the American church today in, in light of what you see in Philippi. And there's a lot of generous people, um, Christians in America, but as a whole, the American church, we don't see joy plus poverty equal generosity. We, we see the American church, which for the most part has a, an abundance of resource, 
but gives very little of that resource to whatever causes they might give to. And I I came across this article this week um, that I want to read a little section of. Um, this is from a researcher at Baylor University, and she, uh, she, her article is entitled, Solving the Riddle of Comfortable Guilt, okay? And um, I think it like, I'm not trying to guilt us, just so you know, um, but I think she taps into the dynamic that so many American Christians experience, all right? So follow with me here. Um, anybody bring any friends to church today? Isn't this like the worst when you bring a friend, it's like, oh, they're talking about financial giving. It's like the worst. That always happened to me. I'd bring friends and they'd be like talking about giving. Um, <laughs> sorry, just, I was just feeling that right now. If you're new, we don't always do this. Just that's all let's say. All right. Um, American Christians who regularly attend church earn around $2 trillion in income annually, yet on average they give less than 1% of their annual earnings to charitable or religious causes. One in five of them gives nothing at all. Why? How is it that Christians living in a nation characterized by abundance and a religiously infused context that calls people to support charitable and religious causes contribute such a relatively low annual amount? Good question. Um, Christians almost universally report that they personally would like to give. However, they often quickly provide explanations for why they do not give at the moment or why their current giving is less than they think it should be. My colleague and I set out to investigate this rather strange occurrence. Um, As part of a broader study, we were able to build relationships with a handful of churches and gain access to their financial records. Grace Fellowship Church was not a part of this study. Um, (laughs) These congregations allowed us to sample their parishioners for interviews based on their church financial giving records. We then selected people for interviews regarding their giving behavior. Uh, What we found was an incredible disconnect between their actual tallied financial contributions to the church and their verbal descriptions to us of those contributions. Uh, The majority of people we spoke to told us that giving is part of what it means to be a Christian, that people of faith are called to see what they have as an abundance of resources to be shared toward the benefit of others. Some said they saw giving as an obligation because the money is not actually theirs, but it belongs to God. A few quite conscientious Christians even mold over with us their thoughts regarding the importance of calculating the percentage based on pre-tax earnings to be sure they didn't cheat the tithe, okay? Yet, with only a couple exceptions, no one in our sample gave anywhere near the expectation they described. Since even a few percentage points of giving by the hundreds of thousands of Christians in the U.S. would equate to more than $100 billion a year in funds available to support religious and charitable causes, we sought to understand why this slippage occurs. What we found was that people identify a variety of motivations to give and a variety of obstacles to their uh, desired giving. Some do not have the resources. Uh, Very many do have the resources, but they think they don't, taking their regular monthly expenditures to be fixed costs and believing they do not have enough remaining discretionary income to give away. Others have what we call giving illiteracy. (laughs) Um, Now, here's the the point. Here's what was really interesting to the title of the article. Aside from those explanations, however, the most interesting one is this notion of comfortable guilt. Most American Christians think they should be giving more than they do, but they're not uncomfortable enough about it to change their giving. The classic social psychological notion of cognitive dissonance appears not to apply in this case. 
According to that idea, when people become aware of a gap between their expectations for themselves and their actual behavior, they generally become uncomfortable and do one of two things. Either they change their behavior to match their ideal, or they change their ideal to match their behavior. But for some reason, when it comes to financial giving, most American Christians appear to bypass this social psychological law of human nature to let the dissonance linger. They do not seem to be concerned about closing their giving gap. Last sentence. American Christians appear to be, on the whole, quite comfortable with the knowledge that their giving behavior does not match their personal or their religion's ideal of what giving should be. Pretty interesting, huh? Um, they actually actually um, includes at the beginning of the, of, uh, of the article the example of a bumper sticker where someone who has a really nice car has a bumper sticker and the bumper sticker reads, don't let the car fool you, my treasure's in heaven. Right? right? And the bumper sticker, I think, captures, it's, it's an ironic sticker and it captures what we feel. Right? And I'm not trying to, I'm honestly, I'm not trying to guilt him, but, but we live in that, that comfortable guilt, right? I, I know it ought to be this. This is what it is. It's kind of uncomfortable, but it's not uncomfortable enough uh, to change the law of cognitive dissonance. And so what I want to ask today, it, my, my goal again is not to guilt this, but, but I want to ask us, um, what are we missing out on that the Philippians understood? Like maybe And and I'm suggesting maybe we're missing out on something. Maybe there's a life of generosity that is actually richer and fuller and more meaningful and fulfilling than this life of consumerism plus comfortable guilt. Maybe we're invited into something more. And so what I want to do is, is with the rest of our time is look at three principles of biblical generosity that we see uh, in this passage. And they're, they're ones you've probably heard of before, but really great principles for living generously. And I see them in verses 17 to 19. Each verse, 17, 18, 19, each one carries a core principle for living generously. All right? Are you with me on the journey? For Here's the more that I believe we are invited into. Uh, first principle, I'll say the principle and then read the passage, is that generosity... When we are generous to others, it is ultimately an investment in our own eternal joy. That's the biblical principle. Okay, when we invest in others, in God's kingdom, we're actually in the end investing in our own eternal joy. Let me read verse 17. Very interesting phrase. Paul says, not that I desire your gifts. I don't actually need the money. That's not the thing that makes me most excited. Then he says this, what I desire is that more may be credited to your account. And what does that mean? And if you have a different translation than NIV, it's possible it says something very different than that. It's hard to know exactly how to translate, but I think most commentators agree that Paul is using a financial metaphor, okay, that more may be credited to your account. The idea being this, you have an account in the kingdom of God. You have an account with God, and the idea being is your generosity is accruing for you interest in the account. In in living a generous life, you are investing in God's kingdom account. So let me give you a little little picture here. Um, 
I think this is the biblical pictures, you know, biblical story, uh, picture of our lives, right? You have this present age, which is the age we're currently living in, and then at some point Christ is going to return, and then you have the age to come, eternity, the kingdom of God, whatever. And Paul is saying there is this account in the kingdom of God that doesn't end at this age. And when we're just trying to store up stuff here, when we're trying to pursue wealth and the accumulation of possessions, we're trying to hold on. All we're doing is we're just investing in a present age. It's a very short-term investment. But when we give, when we give of our lives, of our wealth, our resources to God's kingdom causes, we are investing in the age to come. We're accruing interest in God's kingdom. And in the process, we are investing in our own eternal joy. We are, we, are, we are helping our hearts to fix themselves on the right things. Let me give you what Paul says uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy. This is one of my favorite passages on giving. He says this, uh, Command those who are rich in this present world, those who have a lot on the left side of the Christ return thing, here's what you want to command them to do. To be rich in good deeds, and here's our word, to be generous and willing to share. And then here's what he says. I love this. In this way, through their generosity, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, right? That account. They're laying up treasure, not just in this age, but for the coming age. And here's the phrase that I love so much. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I think Paul is saying, you know what? There's a life that looks like life. You know what that is? It's the pursuit of wealth. It's the pursuit of money. It's the accruing of possessions and the holding tightly of those things. That culturally looks like life. And he's saying that is not life. Ultimately, that's actually a prison. That kind of life is going to choke out your spiritual life that you most long for. What true life is, is this life of investing in God's kingdom, being a part of what he's up to in the world, Investing in people who go on forever, making investments that have an eternal impact. That is actually what our hearts are made for. They're not made to hold on tightly and to cling. They're made to hold loosely and to give as we receive. That is true life. And so Paul, that's what Paul's saying. I don't need the gift. That's not the thing that makes me happy. The thing that makes me happy is it tells me that your hearts are in the right place. And I'm not going to share any personal testimonies right now, but I could, I could share multiple stories of actually people, some of the people who are in this room right now and people who are not in this room, people who are living a certain way financially, okay? They were uh, living beyond their means. Uh, they didn't feel like they had anything to give uh, to whatever they might want to give to, and they were in debt. And at some point, they made a decision. They were convicted financially. So, you know, we, 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 we want to make, make a change, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna live within our means. We're going to start giving, even when it feels like we can't give. And people made that decision. I can tell multiple stories where they would say, that financial decision has had a ripple effect on the rest of our spiritual lives. Like, we have been blessed spiritually in ways that we never would have anticipated on the other side of that decision. It just felt like a financial decision, but it has had implications for our spiritual lives. Our, our whole spiritual lives are deeper and richer and better than they are now. And that shouldn't surprise us. They're taking hold of life that is truly life. And there was a stronghold, most likely, there that had its kind of teeth in different aspects of the life. But you wouldn't know it on the other side of the decision. So all that to say, principle number one, when we invest 
in, in God's kingdom. In the end, we're just investing in our own <laughs> deep, eternal joy. We're investing in, in, in living life that is truly life. Amen? Okay. Uh, second principle, I'll be shorter with these second two, in case you're bored. Just kidding. Um, Second one we see in verse 18, I'll tell you the principle is this, that our generosity to others is ultimately offered as uh, as a sacrifice of worship to God. We give to other people, but really we're supposed to do it as an act of giving to God. Let's look at verse 18. Uh, Paul says this. I'm in Colossians. That's not the right passage, is it? All right, here we go. Uh, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received the gifts from Paphroditus. And this is what he says about the gifts. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. What he's doing is he's drawing on the Old Testament imagery of animal sacrifice, right? Where in the Old Testament, the Jews were, you'd bring an animal to the priest. The priest would slaughter the animal, put it on the altar. In the case of the burnt offering, they would, they would burn up the, the animal. And the smoke of, of the, burn, you know, the burned animal would go up into heaven. It was said to be this aroma that was pleasing to God. Not that God likes the smell of, you know burned animals, but that in, in the sacrificial system of the day, this was how he wanted them to pursue worship. And it was this beautiful act of worship. And in that sense, it was pleasing to God. And Paul is saying, your financial contributions are like those sacrifices. And they're, they are offered as an act of worship to God. And God loves the smell of your generosity. Your generous hearts, it brings pleasure to him. But what he's, what he's saying here is, you gave money to me, right? They gave the money to Paul, but he's saying, ultimately, you were giving the money to God. Your giving to me was an expression of, of offering your money and yourselves to God. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians. Remember that? They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. And so that's the second principle. When, when we give, sure, we're giving to causes and organizations and people, but we're supposed to see our giving ultimately as, God, I'm giving this to you. I'm offering this, my stuff, to you as an act of worship. And I think that's, that's a very helpful principle to keep in mind when we give to, to causes. Because my experience is increasingly our culture, in our culture, we are increasingly suspicious of institutions and organizations, right? That wasn't the case 60 years ago. Now, we're, we're very suspicious of organizations. And so the question is always, I could give money back. You know, where's that money going? Like, is, I see the kid on the commercial, but is my money actually getting to the kid or is it going somewhere else, right? You know, what you name the organization. And so I think it's very important uh, to use discernment <laughs> in what we give to and to try to vet organizations or churches or whatever to make sure that we are giving to causes that are using the finances wisely. But that being said, this principle reminds us, let's not let that be the barrier to giving. Because ultimately, yes, we give to organizations, to people, causes, but ultimately we're giving to God. We're saying, this is yours, God. I'm I'm entrusting this to you as best I know how to do that. And I'm going to trust you uh, with where this goes. Because it's my gift to you. It's not my gift to this organization. It's ultimately to you. So that's the second principle. It's an act of worship given to God. And then finally... And uh, I love this one. Third principle we see in verse 19. I'll say the principle first again. Uh, Our generosity to others is grounded in God's generosity to us. That's what makes, you know, Jesus giving different than other kinds of giving. Our generosity to others is grounded in God's generosity to us. Look at verse 19. Paul reminds the Philippians of this. And my God will meet all of your needs 
according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And you gave to me, you're generous, you let go of your resources, don't worry. God will be generous to you. My God will meet all of your needs. Not all of your greed, necessarily, but all of your needs he will meet. How? According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Meaning, don't forget, God's really, really rich. Like, he's really wealthy. Like, he has, he owns so much real estate. Like, he's so wealthy. He has material wealth. He has spiritual wealth. And you can trust that he's going to provide for you out of those unlimited material and unlimited spiritual resources. You do not have to worry about his provision for you. And we talk a lot these days about a scarcity mentality, right, versus an abundance mentality. And, and I think part of what keeps us from giving is, is a scarcity mentality. I'm worried. If I, if, I, if I give, will there be a, enough left over? My guess is if I asked any of you in this room, why don't you give more? Almost none of you would answer, because I'm greedy, you know. That's not how we, ex- we don't experience ourselves. Because No, the answer is it's an issue of security. I, I would love to give more, um, but I'm afraid. I don't know. I mean, we've got limited stuff, and I don't know if it's going to be there for me. That's, it's, it's an issue of, of security more than greed, I would think, for most of us. And so I just want to remind you that the New Testament consistently paints, when it talks about God's, paints God in this picture of an abundance mentality, that we have this heavenly Father who provides for his children. The resources will not run out. The well will not run dry. Maybe not for our greed, but for our need. That is the consistent uh, posture of the New Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. Jesus himself. Don't worry saying what should we eat or what should we drink or what should we wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. You focus on that. All these other things, he'll take care of the rest. You focus on him. He'll provide for your needs. Uh, Again, Jesus, don't be afraid, little flock. Why? Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is yours. So sell your possessions. Give to the poor. The kingdom's yours. Everything is yours. Be generous. Paul in 2 Corinthians, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God will always give you what you need to fulfill the purposes he has for you in this life. And then one more, this is my favorite one, where God in 2 Corinthians 8, he gives us the gospel in financial terms, okay? Take this in. This will be kind of the, how, how I'll wrap up these principles. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel and financial terms. What is the good news? The good news is this. There was this really rich guy, and he gave up all of his riches to make other poor people rich. That's the gospel, right? Jesus Christ, the richest being in the universe, one with God the Father in heaven, and he empties himself of those riches, becomes a human being, and then he further empties himself and goes to the cross and becomes the poorest human being who's ever lived, right? Dies as a sacrifice for sin, as a curse, so that really poor people like you and me, who are alienated from God, who are without hope in, in, in the world, could be made rich, could be adopted into God's family, to be, be forgiven of all our sins, to, to have his spirit fill us, and to, to be destined for eternal life. That is the good news, that a rich guy 
gave up his riches to make poor people rich. The implication of that, of course, is this. We are all rich in so many ways. Okay? We're rich. And I think that's what the Philippians got. That's where the joy was, is they recognized how rich they were in God. Um, remember, this is what Paul said about them. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, they didn't have much financially, but somehow they gave uh, sacrificially. What possesses a person who is poor to give more money? Well, I think the Philippians would say, we're not poor. <laughs> you might think we're poor, but we don't think we're poor. We're rich. We have God. We have, we have his promises. And he provides all that we need. We've got food. We've got clothing. We are so rich. And I think ultimately that is the fight of generosity. The, the fight of generosity is the fight of faith. It's a fight to trust that God will provide. The well will not run dry. And it's a, it's a fight to be satisfied with who God is for us. To, to, to get our hearts happy in God. Okay? People who are greedy for wealth, their hearts are not happy in God. That's why they're looking for something else to possess. And so ultimately, the fight for generosity is always a fight for faith. Am I content with him? Do I trust that he will give me what I need to make it through this life? All right, so those are three principles. There's so many more in Scripture, but three that I see in this passage. Let me take us back one more time to this proverb. This is the last time you're going to see it for a while. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What kind of hearts do we want? Do we want hearts that are trying to cling to all that we have? Or do we want these hearts that are open-handed, that give as we have received? That is a life-giving place for our hearts to be. So let me leave you, I've given you those principles. Let me leave you with this. Now, we all fall on some continuum of this giving uh, issue, right? What does God have for you in this, okay? Uh, what does God have for you in this conversation about generosity? Um, some of you in this room, you would find yourself in that, that, um, that article, right? You're one of the people that gives the 1% or maybe not at all. You find yourself there, okay? I think this is a great opportunity to actually carve out some space alone or if you're married with your spouse and to just ask questions like what, why is that? Why do we fall in that category? What's driving that? Um, are we living beyond our means? Are we just trying to give with what's left over at the end of the month? And, well, there's never anything left over at the end of the month. Um, is there fear? Are we not trusting? What's driving that? At least to ask the questions and be honest with ourselves. Um, some of you uh, give faithfully and you, you love it. Maybe today is, it's just an opportunity to, to revisit that conversation and say, God, is there some new adventure of generosity that you have for me? Is there, um, is there another level of, of generosity you're calling me to? Or is there some new you know, um, ministry that you're, that you're putting on my heart that you would want me to partner with? It's an opportunity to step back and go, what is that? And I want to end by just talking about financial partnership, because that's really the theme in, in Philippians. And I want to invite us to commit to financial partnerships, okay? I'm going to give you a little graph. This is the last graph you'll see. Um, Carrie and I did this our first year of marriage um, as we you know, brought our finances together. And we did this little pie chart. It didn't look quite like this, but just like, hey, like, what do we want to give to? 
Um, now we've pu- we're pooling resources. What is God calling us to partner with? And just try to come up with some big pieces of the pie to think through and then to try to do that. And I think I would encourage everyone to do this, okay? And it doesn't need to look like this. But let me, I want to give you four um, pieces of the pie that I think would be really good for you to consider, all right? Three of them, I would say, are our core biblical values. And then the fourth one you'll see is uh, its own deal. So here's, as you think about partnering uh, with people, with organizations, here's what I would encourage you to consider. Here's three that I think are real key in scripture. First one is the local church, okay? If you are a member or if you're, you know, if you call Grace your home church, we want you to partner with us financially. We want you to invest in this community. We want you to invest your time, your energy, and we want you to invest your resources. I think there's a clear biblical, I could give you lots of arguments why scriptures say the local church is a, is a key place to invest in with all of who you are, including your finances. So we want you invested here. I, I will say that without apology. If you are here, this is your church. Invest in this place in, in multiple ways. Um, core, key biblical value. Uh, another one um, that you just can't escape in Scripture would be the poor and needy. From cover to cover, you see God's heart for the poor and the needy and God calling his people to provide for the poor and needy. So I think that's a big category. Again, I'm not saying 25% in this. I'm just giving you the big categories. And there's so many organizations that are doing this in so many different ways. So there's just a, a vast array of options. But I would, I would encourage you to consider that category of giving because it's so clear in Scripture. Uh, and then the other clear biblical category, I would say, is, is to share the gospel. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's as important as it gets. So what are those, who are those people or what are those organizations that are spreading the good news about Jesus? And which are the ones that you would want to partner with? I think these are the three obvious biblical categories. And then the fourth one, which I love, is going to be there's things that are so unique to you. And for me, this is the funnest category in terms of giving. And it it gets people excited to give. You ask the question, God, how have you wired me? What experiences have you given me? What have you taken me through? What are the passions you've put in me, in us, if you're, you know, thinking about this with other people? And how would those passions and experiences, how would that inform where we should be giving our money? Am I passionate about children? Am I passionate passionate about education? Uh, Am I passionate about um, business entrepreneurship? Am I passionate about, you know, whatever. What, what have you put in me, and how could that, how could I get excited to give? How can generosity be fun and exciting for me? And let, uh, let there be a freedom in, in, in how you do that. I think those are, that, that's what I would encourage you to think through when it comes to actual partnerships in your life. All right, all that to say, um, Straight to, the, straight to the worship. No, um, generosity. We want these hearts that, that give as we have received so that our own hearts can take hold of the life that is truly life. So let me pray for us and then we will respond in worship and music. Well, Lord... Uh, as we did at the beginning of the service and as we consider that, that great verse, I was so grateful for your gospel that um, you gave up your riches. You gave them to us so that poor folks like us could be made rich. 
Um, I pray that that good news would sink in wherever we need to hear that today, that we would experience your goodness and your generosity and your grace on our lives. And I pray that that grace would free us from the hold, from the fears, from the insecurities that keep us clinging tightly to our stuff. Free us to trust. Free us to look out beyond ourselves and to experience the joy of generosity. And direct us and guide us to the people, uh, to the causes that you would have us move towards. For the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of our own hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.